Uh, we used to um, we used to take a lot of family road trips growing up. A lot of vacations. Now, I have some memories of us flying on an airplane, but most of it was us piling into our, our caravan and driving in what felt like endless hours to vacation. And it's not a true vacation unless you hear from the front seats from one of the parents, if you don't stop right now, I will pull this van over. Right, it's us kids in the back fighting over leg room or who gets to pick the next movie on the VHS player my dad packed for us, right? There gets to be a breaking point for the parents, but it has to get to this level, right? In the very beginning of the trip, everyone's excited, everyone's patient, everyone's full of grace, and the first argument happens like 30 minutes in, and, the, and mom's like, hey guys, guess what? We'll be at the beach soon, don't need to fight, don't need to cry, everything's going to be okay, right? A couple hours go by, the next argument happens. Mom turns around, right? Listen, guys, I need you to be big kids, okay? Be grown up, it's going to be a long trip, you'll be okay. But then a few hours later, guess what happens? There's traffic, fast food bellies, never, that's never good. One parent critiquing the other parent's driving abilities, and all patience is gone, and it becomes, kids, I will pull this car over right now. Right? We get to that point. And it's a powerful statement by a parent. I mean, I, I'm a lot like my dad, right? I, I don't want to make any stops, okay? So the fact that I would threaten to pull off the route means it's a big deal. In our passage today, we have one of these kids, I will pull this van over moments. Now, it's not because Paul is easily, easily aggravated. He's not having a rough moment himself. No, we are in chapter 3, and over the last two chapters, Paul's been pretty mild and patient. He's looked back at the, at the church and said, okay, guys, pull together, pull together. But he gets to chapter 3, and he says, okay, it's time to pull the van over. Let's get to it. There's some problems going on here in Corinth, and we need to deal with it. Let's be direct. Let's have a face-to-face moment here. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Please turn there if you can. It's on page 953 of those pew Bibles. But this passage is is a rebuke. It's a confrontation. It is a pullover moment. So there's a sense of seriousness to the tone of this text today. Once you find 1 Corinthians 3, would you please stand in reverence for the word of the Lord? But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you've believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It's the word of the Lord. Let us pray. 
Lord, we know your word is perfect and it revives our soul, even difficult passages like this. So do that this morning. Revive our soul. Spirit, help us. Amen. Please be seated. Let's stay with this um, road trip analogy for just a further moment. Right, Paul, Paul reached that moment where he realized the most effective way to show the seriousness of the sin in Corinth is to pull the car over. Now, let's be honest. If you're driving and you have young kids in the car, you are expecting at some moment this kind of bad behavior. Okay, We expect it. It's children. We discipline, but guess what? We expect kids to act improperly. But you know what the problem is here with the church at Corinth? They're not children. But they're acting like children, as Paul says. They're acting childish spiritually. Right? Paul planted this church. He helped form this church years before. He taught them. He set them up for health. He gave them pastors, elders. And now he's hearing that they are not acting as mature as they should be at this point. They're actually regressing. They're trying to go backwards. So it's as if Paul's driving the van on a road trip. The Corinthian church is all in the back of the van, and they're grown adults, and he has to pull them over and say, you guys are acting immature. Share the snacks, right? Now, in a moment, we're going to look at what their childish behavior specifically is here, but I think we need to realize that this passage is not just a rebuke for this church 2,000 years ago, though it is. This passage is also, according to the Bible, for us, for our instruction. Now, we may not struggle with the same issues here in the passage. Maybe we do. But even if we don't, let me ask you a question about Christian maturity. Do you ever think that you should be a lot farther in your Christian maturity than you are? Maybe you think, hey, I, I should know a lot more of the Bible, or I should know a lot more of God than I do now. Or you think, Man, I, I really thought years ago I would have been past this same sin issue I've been dealing with for year after year. I thought I'd be past it. Or you look at another person here at church, you think, man, I, I wish I was mature as her or as him. Now, we don't have a scale that says, if you've been a Christian for 10 years, you should have this many verses memorized, these sins defeated, this, this, and this. We don't have that. There's no scale like that. But I think we, if we're honest, we are pretty good at evaluating our spiritual health over the years. We can look back and say, oh, I wasted those years. Or wow, look what the Lord has done in my life. I've had many conversations with some of the older Christians here, and a lot of them say things like, I wish I could go back and tell my younger self to take the call of Christ more seriously and not wait till I was older. I hear that all the time. But we allow what the busyness of life we allow the pursuit of career. We pursue parenting so well. We pursue sins of our youth. And we pause our faith by other good things. There's great things out there. Parenting matters. Career matters. Hobbies matter. But do they matter the most? It may be true that we should be farther along in our spiritual maturity than we are. That's what Paul is saying to this church here. Paul is the friend, he's a pastor to this Corinthian church, and he's one that we need in our life, right? A true friend is willing to rebuke us, 
A true friend is willing to pull the car over and say, okay, let's get going. We got to get back on track here. And maybe this is the passage that God is going to use the rebuke to get you going towards Christian maturity. Paul was writing to a real group of Christians, a real local church. And their problem, as we're going to see in a moment, is that they were acting a lot more like non-Christians than Christians. Now, they're saved. Paul's not questioning their belief. In verse 1, he calls them brothers. Brothers, sisters, as in you are blood-bought citizens like me. But then he says, but I can't address you as if you are spiritual. I can hardly refer to you as Christians because you are not acting Christian. So he's pulled the car over. He says, hey, you actually guys are expected to live like Christ actually saved you. Live out who you actually already are in Christ. Essentially, he's saying, you all know better. And this is the message for all of us today. Here's the main point of our sermon and our passage today. It's this, CVBC, we are expected to actually live out the identity Jesus has given to us. We are expected to actually live out the identity that Jesus has given to us. Now, we don't like expectations today, do we? We don't like people telling us what we should do or shouldn't do. But this is the call of Christ. If I went through your wallet right now, I'd probably find a lot of cards, okay? Some you use, others you don't, but you probably are a member at a store, you're a rewards member here, you have this access at a restaurant, maybe you paid to be a AAA member, And it's so easy to become a member of a company or an organization or a rewards program today. And you may be be a member somewhere and you actually forget that you're a member there. Any one of us can become a member at the Chippewa YMCA. You can pay your dues, you can get on your roster, you can even get your photo card taken and be official. And yet, guess what? We actually don't have to show up to work out. You can say, I'm a YMCA member, and that's true, but does our behavior actually match up with our membership? It's like, yeah, I own a treadmill. Um, It's hanging my clothes right now, but I have a treadmill. Same with what's going on in Corinth. Paul knows their faith. They were genuinely regenerate. They're changed hearts, converted hearts. But in some areas, they're not living out their true identity and true change. What they are doing does not match up with who they are. So there's two paragraphs of text here. And the first paragraph, verses 1 to 4, are about immature Christian behavior. And then verses 5 to 9 give a good example of what good, mature Christian behavior looks like. So these are our two points today. First is immaturity. Second is maturity. So essentially, here's an example we shouldn't follow as point one. The immature Christian. I want to look again here at verses 1 to 2. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. Paul says the church is spiritual people saved by Christ, having the spirit dwell in them. Sin has been conquered, yet their attitude Behavior, 
Life looks more like they are still stuck in the flesh. The New Testament, if you go through the New Testament, you're going to see often a contrast between the spiritual and the fleshly. Galatians 5.19, for example, it says, Now the works of the flesh are, and gives a huge list, like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, and it goes on and on and on. The ways of the world are marked by these kind of behaviors, the way of the flesh. This is what we should expect the world to look like because the world is fleshly. But then Galatians 5.22 says, but the other way, the way of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit is what? Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those who have the Spirit of God in them behave and think and act like the Spirit in them. So with love and with joy and peace and patience. Spirit versus the flesh. But here in Corinth, the church is spiritual in their identity, but they have gone somewhat backwards to go back into the closet of the flesh and put on those clothes instead of the clothes they should be wearing with the Spirit. And then Paul gives another analogy, and this is where it hurts, okay? He calls them infants in Christ. Now, sometimes today when someone becomes a new Christian, someone gets saved today, tomorrow we might call them a baby Christian. And that can be a good thing, right? But not here. This group of Christians should be way past the baby or infant Christian stage. They should be adult, mature Christians. This is a hard rebuke, right? They're taking the Benjamin Button route of spirituality, and it's not a good idea. He takes this analogy even further. He says that they are just on milk, but they should be on what? Solid food. Do you see that? Now, this does not mean that Paul gave them really light, fun, artificial food, and then now he's waiting for them to get to the hard stuff. No, no, no. Paul made it clear in chapter 2, right? He kept preaching the same message over and over again. Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Christ crucified. That was the pathway into Christianity, and it's the pathway for all of Christianity. But the problem is that the Corinthian church is so immature that they have not matured with the gospel. Right, A child goes from milk to solid food, but the Corinthian church has become stagnant and they don't want to digest anything but milk. They aren't maturing. They actually are bringing in behaviors and thinking of the world into their church. Paul's saying, I would have more patience and grace for you if you were all brand new Christians and maybe you were distracted by the world or you're getting adjusted, but come on guys, you've had years of teaching, years to develop, and yet you're acting like a baby unwilling to digest the gospel into your life. They see Christ crucified and they don't apply it to their lives. They don't apply it to their homes, to their work, to the way they see each other, the way they fight sin. They should be feasting on the gospel that Paul preached them and apply the gospel of Christ in their lives, but they're not digesting it. They're just laying there. It's as if Paul invited them over for dinner. He's cooking steak and chicken and he's got lobster, right? The, the steak is perfect. It's medium rare, right? It's just perfect and juicy, he loads up their plates with meat, and they look at Paul, and they say, can we just have yogurt instead? And Paul's like, I just, I just made all this meat for you. It's going to make you full. It tastes so good. This is real food. 
and yet they are childish in what they want. We often joke with my sister, because growing up, we'd go out to eat, right? Italian restaurant, steakhouse, wherever we go, and what does she order every time? Chicken tenders, right? She's had chicken tenders at Italian restaurants, Mediterranean restaurants. She's very diverse. Now, as the Corinthian church is reading this rebuke, they would be shocked. They'd be shocked and appalled that Paul is calling them childish. Right? The last two chapters have shown the Corinthian church thinks they're doing pretty good. They know a lot of wisdom of the world. They know what dynamic speaking is. They think they have this special knowledge, this special wisdom. They think they're doing really well. By their own estimation, they are mature. They think they're better off than other people. So they're shocked that Paul says, yeah, yeah, no, you are acting childish. But Paul says, okay, do you want proof that you guys are acting more like infants or fleshly? It's verse 3 and 4. Here's the evidence. Verse 3 says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? The jealousy, the strife, or the fighting that's seen in the church is the proof of the pudding that the church is immature and childish. Now, hear me out. When we get to chapter 5, we're going to see a lot more evidence that this church is immature. But the evidence right here that he brings to the table is jealousy and strife. Back in chapter 1, we, we, we mentioned this already, but the church has created divisions within themselves. Some like how Apollos, one of the Christian preachers, preaches and thinks. Others like Paul, how he preaches and thinks. Others like Peter, how he preaches and thinks. And they began to compare and compete and judge and in a church that should be unified, groups began to raise up and argue against each other in the church. So strife happens. Jealousy raises up when one group gets bigger than the other. So you have a church who shows up to worship God and yet judges one another. Arguing in the lobby. Talking down at each other. Pridefully glancing at each other thinking, I'm better than that group over there. They're acting like they don't have the spirit of peace in them. Their strife, their jealousy is childish. They're acting like spiritual children by gossiping, by fighting. Grown adults acting like kids. And Paul argues that the church's jealousy and fighting is preventing them from becoming mature. The church cannot look like Jesus if the church looks like the world. The world, right, is full of jealousy and division. Think about it. The world is about self-promotion. How can I get on top? Which means I might need to kick you down to get there. The world is about becoming happier or richer or whatever. It's full of competition. So Corinth let the world's values seep into how they did church. And that means that Christ can't rule in their hearts if sin is ruling in their hearts, right? There is no state of neutrality with Christ in the church. You're either progressing towards Christ or away from him. We cannot be neutral Switzerland spiritually. Corinth chose the world, so they chose immaturity. 
their desire to compete, to compare, to attempt to pridefully rule over other people in their own church or to come off as smarter than the other group. That's what they sought. And that means that they missed out on the very purpose of what it means to be a Christian and to belong to church. They missed out on Jesus. Friends, where are we allowing the ways of the world to seep in and triumph over the ways of Christ in our lives, individually, and also in our church? I want to make a blanket statement here. If you are allowing a sin to rule in your life, whether publicly or privately, public or hidden, it will prevent you from maturity, period. When you allow sin to rule, you are not allowing the cross of Christ to rule. And I think you know if that's you or not. But I want to look at the specific sins mentioned here. Jealousy and strife. Friends, if we allow jealousy strife, fighting, division to take root in our church, we are not going to be a mature church. If we want CVBC to be a place of rich and mature and vibrant and joyful faith in Jesus, then we can't let jealousy or strife or division take any root here, period. And we've had this in our church. We've had strife. We've had conflict, sides being taken, and God is saying to us what he said to Paul in Corinth. It's immature. When we begin to judge others in our church, we are headed the wrong way. Now, I mean, if someone's in rampant sin in our church, right, we are going to come to them gently and try to correct that and rebuke that. But I'm talking about here judgment on topics and issues that are not central to the gospel, if Paul's preaching or Apollos preaching does not make Christianity Christianity. If we begin to take sides over issues that results in us thinking my side is better than the other side, guess what that results in? Division and pride. That's of the flesh. If we are unwilling to learn from someone else in this room or in these pews who thinks differently than us on an issue, then we are acting more like the world. Can we be taught by someone who might disagree with us on this issue in our life? Teachability is one of the great mature uh, marks of a mature Christian. Are you not tired every day of receiving mail upon mail regarding the upcoming election? I mean, let's be honest. Every ad is negative, it's cutthroat, it's judgmental. I'm watching football, and every commercial break is telling me how this politician is the worst person who's ever lived their lives. I'm sick of it. But that's our world, right? That's our world. And we must be careful, and I mean extremely, extremely careful, to not let this kind of jargon or attitude seep slowly and secretly into our church. Because it's dangerous. Anything that prevents us from maturing in the faith is dangerous. And the gospel, the gospel of Jesus saved us from jealousy. It saved us from strife. It saved us from division and pride. Those nails 
that were pierced through the hands of Jesus were for the sins of jealousy and strife and gossip. Jesus actually sets us free from the desire to belong to him through comparison and competition. He set us free from that. Now, how do you and I belong? How do you and I belong to God? How do you and I belong to each other? Not the way the world is. It's not by picking sides or knowing better or being smarter or being this or being that. No, the only way that you and I belong to Jesus and belong to each other is by looking to Jesus, period. The church is a safe haven for people who are tired of having to perform or reach a certain level or compare or compete. The cross of Christ sets us free from this strife and jealousy. The cross gave us peace with God so we can have peace and not strife with others. That's why jealousy and strife are dangerous acts of immaturity because they are actually antithetical to the gospel. There's a reason why here at our church, like many churches, we have an official document called Essential Christian Doctrines, our statement of faith. These are the beliefs, the the stances, the views that we will die on. We consider these gospel issues that if you twist them or reduce them or change them or remove them, you are messing with the gospel itself. We'll die on these hills. But you know what's not on this document? Most of the stuff that churches fight over. You're not going to find politics on that. Yet a lot of times we think politics are the filter we should see things through. You're not going to find things on there like specific end times view or how old the earth is or if the gift of tongues is still active. Are those things important? Yes, they are. But are these things important enough to divide over and judge one another on? Absolutely not. The world divides over those things, but guess what? We're not of the world. We're the church of Christ. So those things are not going to be an issue here for the sake of maturity and for the sake of elevating the name of Jesus above all else. Those things will not be a point of division here. Friends, we show our maturity by not allowing jealousy or strife or pride to enter into our community life here. But guess what? We also show our immaturity when we allow those things to rule us in the church. But let's finish by looking at the last paragraph. This is where Paul says there's a better way. The mature way, the mature Christian. Paul essentially says you don't have to choose sides. You don't have to join Team Paul or compete against Team Apollos. You don't, you don't have to. Actually, there's a more mature way. And it's in verses 5 to 9. And I'm going to read it in a second, but I want you to note something that's repeated a lot in verses 5 to 9 that aren't mentioned in verses 1 to 4. It's the frequency of the name of God. Verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He plants, he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. 
for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. All right, verses 1 to 4 are just a negative description of what the church is doing. Their problem, they're focusing on Paul, Apollos, division, strife. But verses 5 to 9, he says, the focus should be on God. God is mentioned six times in this little paragraph of verses 5 to 9. Paul uses himself and Apollos as examples to the church. The church was fighting over Apollos, taking sides. But here Paul says, hey, me and Apollos, we don't have this approach. Instead, we have the approach where we are looking to God in all things. Today, if Paul and Apollos were here, they'd be considered what we say, celebrity pastors, which, by the way, is a terrible title. They don't want to be that. They were great preachers, influential, well-known leaders, but look at their humble approach. It says in verse 5, what is Apollos? What is Paul? What's the answer? It's not even pastors. It's servants. They are not primarily teachers or megachurch pastors, or leaders. No, they are servants. And by the way, this is a good reminder for any of us here who are elders at this church. It's challenging. It's convicting. Paul says he's a servant, period. That means what? He is not in charge. He is not the master, but he is the servant. And in verses 5 to 7, we see Paul and Apollos, both servants, and they have different roles, right? It says Paul planted, but Apollos Watered. What that means is Paul came in, he planted the church, he founded the church, but then he left. Apollos came in and, and watered it as in he taught and he discipled, right? Think about your lawn. Maybe you planted it, moved away, and someone else came in and moved in and they're watering it. Unique, different roles, right? Our church right here, full of different roles and spiritual gifts and abilities. Some of you um, have public ministry. Some of you have private ministry. Some of you seem to reach a huge number of people. Some of you work alone here at church and serve cleaning nursery toys, for example, that no one knows who you are. And yet, no matter your role or your calling, we all have the same identity. We are servants of God. And verse 8 mentions that Paul and Apollos, like all pastors, must work faithfully and well and will be evaluated and rewarded by God. That's going to be more for next sermon. But what I want you to see here is that Paul primarily sees his role, even his huge public, world-changing ministry role as a role of servanthood and submission to God. Does he preach? Yes. Do people come to know Jesus through Paul's ministry? Yes. Do people grow in their faith as Paul preaches? Yes. But note how often Paul says, it's not his doing but the Lord's. Who saves people? God. Who grows people? God. Who builds the church? God. Who grows the field? God. Who secures the building? The church. God, God, God. This church is competing over which leader or group or wisdom is smarter or better. But Paul says, stop it. My, my focus is on serving God and giving God the attention. Paul and God hates human worship. Paul wants all the credit to go where it should go. And that is God. As the church is fighting over leaders and they're being jealous and they're competing over things that don't truly matter, Paul says, the leader of the church is God. Any success or health or numerical growth or any fruit that comes from our church is from God. Friends, if you've grown in your faith at this church because of a Bible study, um, because of mentoring, because of a sermon, because of the music. You know, praise the Lord for that. 
whoever picked the music, whoever taught that Bible study were simply the vehicles. But it's God who is the engine. It's God who is steering. It is God who opens your heart. It's God who got your attention. It's God who sprung up fruit. Even right now, if you feel a little rebuked in your heart, maybe this passage is speaking to you and you say, I I need to be mature. I need to pursue God. That's not because of me speaking. That's because God is behind the text and God is behind your heart and God is behind your conviction. The mature Christian is the one who has God as his primary focus. That's the point. The mature church is the church who so zeroed in on God. We glorify God. We serve God. We speak godly words. We look at one another in a godly way. We test all things by the word of God. We see ourselves as, as verse 9 says, as belonging to God. We are God's field, which means what? He can farm us and till us and harvest us however he desires. We are God's building and he can renovate us or support us or structure us however God wants to. It is about God. The mature Christian is God focused. See, we can't be focused on the world and God at the same time. We like to think we can dabble a little bit here in this worldly stuff or have this little sin and think it won't affect our Christian life it doesn't work that way. We might convince ourselves it does, but you can't have your eyes looking at different places at the same time. Paul is quick to say that the mature Christian is Godward focused. And this focus attacks pride and jealousy and strife. It is hard for us to be jealous if we're focused on God. It is. It's hard to be jealous of someone's blessings or knowledge or good circumstances if we're focused on God. Instead, if we're focused on God, we actually will rejoice with them because we know that all good things, even that our friend has, comes from God. It's hard to be dividing in the church over non-essential things like Paul or Apollos if we are God-focused. How can we argue or insult or look down on each other if we're looking at God? God save those people we disagree with. God save those who vote differently or see that thing differently than you. God delights in them. So how can we insult someone who God delights in? By looking to God, we're actually set free to love and delight in those we may disagree with on things. It is hard to be prideful or boasting in ourselves if we're looking to God. Any knowledge you and I have, any success we have in ministry or evangelism, any knowledge we have of our Bible, guess where it comes from? From God. The mature Christian is God-focused in all of his life. In other words, Christian, we are expected to actually live out what God has already made us into. We are saved and redeemed, blood-bought children of a holy God. Sin has fully been conquered. We are Christians under the cross of Christ. The sin has no hold on us. It's been taken off of us and crucified with Christ on the cross. We have peace with God, life everlasting. We have a calling to be with God, to follow Jesus, to obey his commands. We are his servants. He is the master. So Paul asks us, will we grow up? 
Will we mature? Will we look to God and stop looking to the world? Will we as a gathered church look to God? In other words, will we choose maturity or immaturity? Because there is no neutrality. So church, we need one another's examples, like Paul's, to push us to look to God. I, as your brother in Christ, need you to live a Godward life for my eyes to see. I need to see how you look to God in whatever job you have. I need to see you looking to God as you parent your children. I need to see you look to God and how you make decisions and how you confess your sins and show me the safety of the gospel. I need you to look to God and love people you normally wouldn't love if you weren't a Christian. I need that example. And as we come individually to this church to gather together, that will only motivate us to worship and look to God together. Because our singing, if we're pursuing God, our singing won't be some apathetic chore, but will be a celebration of praise. Our preaching won't just be something to sit through. It's going to be an opportunity to receive instruction from our master. We will show up here not just to small talk our way through the lobby, but looking to God, we will see how can I serve my brother or my sister. Right? Think about it, even as you walked into the building today. Maybe you thought nothing about it, and that's okay. I, that's honest. But do you ever walk in looking to God saying, God, who do you want me to encourage today? Do you ever walk into the building thinking, God, Help me mean what I'm about to sing. God, help me have attention during the sermon. Or even last night, do we think, hey, how does my bedtime tonight affect my attentiveness to my church family tomorrow? God, focus. We're not going to come up here and judge the music or the sermon based strictly on our preferences, but if it brings us to God rightly, then we thank him for that. We won't be bothered by someone chit-chatting our ear off because we see that person as someone God delights in. So we rejoice in them. God-focused changes everything, and it's different than the world. And the way that we mature, the way that we reach the world is by keeping God as the object of our eyes. Tomorrow, what we you know, call Halloween, was made famous um, in 1517 by Martin Luther as he nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And we could talk almost nonstop about Luther. He was a character, had a personality. He was the vehicle God chose to bring the Reformation, which is what even a lot of secular historians say is maybe the most monumental historical moment in the world. But how does this world-changing, life-changing event happen? How did Luther do it? Luther said, years later after the Reformation, he says this, quote, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. Luther said the world was changed by God being brought to the focus of the world. By God's word being preached, by God being taught, by God being read, not Luther's, not anyone else, not some event, not some entertainment, but God. When we put God front and center in our life, God matures us, God brings the gospel, God does stuff. So the mature Christian is God-focused, 
He sets the agenda. He's our desire. He's our delight. And this protects us from the dangers of the world seeping into our lives and into our church. God is the point. So let's not let our eyes get off track. So he's the foundation. He is the building. He's the cornerstone of this church. We look to him. We build only on him. We're held secure by him. So you know what we're going to do right now? We're going to sing about him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what our eyes find you so beautiful and so captivating and so true that we only look to you. Pray that for ourselves and our personal lives, but as a church, let us be unified in looking to you and you alone, and you will mature us and build us up and conform us to the image of your Son. God, do this. Jesus, do this. Spirit, do this. Let you be the focus forever. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.